Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 9th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, well, it's David Scott. Welcome to the programme, David. It's lovely to be back once again, Mike, in sunny Plymouth. Uh, well, sunny, yeah, right. And uh, we've got uh, Brian joining us remotely and also Katie Joe Murphy joining us as well. Uh, we've got lots to get through, so we'll get kicked off here uh, with the Queen's speech. And of course, uh, the Queen will be giving her speech, I believe, on Wednesday. Uh, so what are they going to be talking about? Let's have a look. Uh, energy strategy, including nuclear power plants. Uh, apparently, according to the Daily Mail today, uh, David, uh, we're going to have so much energy by 2030, we're not going to know what to do with it. We've heard that one before, also associated with nuclear power, but maybe this time it's for real. Uh, well, in fact, they were making the comment based on, uh, on uh, solar power, uh, which maybe that's because we're going to cover up all our lakes. Yes, uh, driving, uh, flying down to Plymouth the other day, I did see a, a small reservoir covered in solar panels. It seemed a terrible thing to do to the environment. Uh, indeed. Uh, there's also going to be a bill to replace the Human Rights Act. So we have warned everybody that that one was coming. Uh, privatisation of Channel 4, of course. Uh, a new schools bill uh, is going to be announced. And that's going to provide legislation necessary for the government's key education reforms, David, and support its uh, central mission to spread opportunity to level up the country driving future economic growth. And if that hasn't made you ill, uh, what does it, what's it basically going to allow them to do? Well, as you know, the schools have been uh, basically uh, handed over to the various uh, private, remind me that the- Academies. Academies, thank yes. you. They're going to allow them to set up multi-academy trusts now. Okay. Uh, and so that's going to work well. Uh, There's potential of a new Official Secrets Act, and of course the potential for the Counter-State Threats Bill, both of which are pretty horrendous as far as uh, journalism are concerned, um, uh, particularly investigative journalism and so on. Uh, but uh, the key, uh, the, the, the core of what Boris is talking about is the Super 7. Does that uh, fill you with confidence? The Super 7, this is uh, going to cut all kinds of red tape uh, around Brexit and the uh, fallout from Brexit. Okay, we'll come on to that in a little bit in a second, but here's what Boris is saying about it. From data reform to, to gene editing to financial services, these bills will allow us to thrive as a modern, dynamic and independent country. And this government is getting on with the job of delivering them. That's the Super 7 he's talking about. Data reform, gene editing and financial services. That's what we're building a future on. Correct. So that is the, 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 the main three of the seven. Um, and uh, of course, one of the others, thanks to Debbie for this, she may uh, have more to say about this on Wednesday. Uh, but uh, the Queen's speech will seek to make Pandemic pavement cafe culture permanent, according to Wales Online. Uh, and of course, this is heading in the direction of 15 minute cities uh, and so on. But let's just remind ourselves last year's Queen's speech, of course, had the lovely uh, Eye of Horus logo. Uh, if you look at the bottom uh, right there for the Queen's speech, uh, and that was all about building back better. Do you think they have achieved that goal to build back better in, in the last year or so? Uh, well, there's not been any building. Um, and and there's not been much there's not been much coming back and nothing's got better so I, I would say no to that one no indeed uh, well so let's look at one area that is building back better of course and that's energy because the energy company's making huge profits in the first quarter of this year uh, but don't worry uh, they're very concerned about us um, so here's Keith Anderson the chief executive of Scottish Power uh, and he's saying we need to be realistic about the gravity of the situation around energy provision and the and the future costs of energy. Uh, around 40% of UK households, potentially 10 million homes, could be in fuel poverty this winter. And of course, what's he talking about? Well, uh, it's the fact that the, uh, the threshold uh, on billing, the, the, the charges, is going to ri rise again in October. 
so we potentially are expecting to look at by the end of next year two to three thousand pounds a year is the average bill uh, instead of uh, well two thousand I think at the moment uh, as, a, as a you know a result of the the most recent uh, uplift in costs so um, do you think uh, Boris is going to take the advice and, and the, the encouragement and uh, and offer people some kind of solution to this problem. Is there a solution to this problem? Well, the, the solution is twofold. The solution is one, uh, removing the government impediments to supplying power uh, and, and, and energy. Uh, and secondly, uh, stop devaluing the currency so that the, the purchasing value of money is forever reduced. And I'm afraid I don't see any sign of Boris addressing either one of those. No, indeed. So let's move on to other economy, economic stuff. Well, I've got a couple of quotes here from Ludwig von Mises' great work, uh, Human Action. Um, and uh, the, um, the go on to, uh, he goes on to explain uh, an issue called uh, the crack-up boom. Uh, so he, he, he writes in Human Action, uh, once... Um, Public opinion is convinced that the increase in the quantity of money, that's inflation, will continue and never come to an end, and that consequently, consequently the prices of all commodities and services will not cease to rise. Everybody becomes eager to buy as much as possible and to restrict his cash holding to a minimum size. For under these circumstances, the regular costs incurred by holding cash are increased uh, and the losses caused by the progressive fall in the purchasing power. Uh, the advantages of holding cash must be, must be paid for by sacrifices which are deemed unreasonably burdensome. This phenomenon was in, uh, was in the great European inflations of the 20s called the flight into real goods or the crack-up boom. Uh, and he, uh, he continues, when the masses finally wake up, uh, they become suddenly aware of the fact that inflation is a deliberate policy and will go on endlessly. The breakdown occurs, the crack-up boom appears. Everybody is anxious to swap his money against real goods, no matter whether he needs them or not, no matter how much money he has to pay for them. Within a very short time, within a few weeks or even days, the things which were used as money are no longer used as a media of exchange. They become scrap paper. No one wants to give them away against, uh, to give away anything against them. So this is the crack up boom uh, that Mises is describing here. Uh, and I, I, I raise this as an issue because it illustrates how quickly economies can go wrong and what we should be looking for. Uh, one of the things we should be looking for is a flight into real goods and away from money. And with that in mind, I am I'm pleased to announce that Bentley, fine British company, uh, Bentley announces its best ever first quarter. Um, uh, this, is, this is fantastic. We've got here uh, uh, Otto Josh, I think a new magazine for the UK column. Um, are talking about the British Mark Bentley Motors Limited announced its best ever first quarter, operating profits up 162% to $170 million in the quarter, figures mirror companies' uh, second highest full year profit figure ever. Um, the revenue uh, per car um, soars up to €212,000 um, and uh, return on sales reaches 21%. So it's fantastic. Falls a record year in 2021. So despite the fact that we've got pandemics, despite the fact that we've got wars, despite the fact that we've got raging inflation, um, there's a flight from money into Bentleys. And it's and not just Bentleys. I mean, it's uh, housing, the, the, the rise in house prices is accelerating at the moment, uh, despite the fact that uh, there are obvious concerns that interest rates are going to go up and uh, the, the risks involved in taking on a mortgage at this point uh, are, are 
significant. So, significant. so you know, there has to be something else driving house prices in the way that they're going. Exactly so. Now, here we've got uh, David Stockman um, talking about uh, monetary madness amongst the central bankers. And he's got the, the major central banks. This actually doesn't include the Bank of England, the Fed, the European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, and the uh, Appeals Bank of China. Uh, and he's got, uh, since 2006, just the total uh, market capitalization, the total balance sheet of these banks has gone from $5 trillion up to about $32 trillion, uh, just in the year since 2006. So this is a huge amount of money printing by the central banks. Um, and uh, he, he then goes on to illustrate just how little the central banks know and how poor their, their uh, predictions are by this chart here, which is the European inflation rate. Um, now, the red line's the inflation rate. The blue dotted line is the uh, predicted inflation rate that the European Central Bank was, was expecting just back in December 2021. And you see how completely wrong they got it then. And the prediction from March 2022 is equally, equally wrong and completely bizarre. They expect it will go happily and immediately back to their 2% band and everything will be fine. That's what they are with a straight face predicting. Well, that, and that indeed is exactly what we were showing on Friday's programme with, uh, with the Bank of England's predictions as well. So, so there's clearly a common narrative between the central banks there. Yes, and, and this narrative bears no relationship to reality at all. So if the central banks have lost grip in reality, and the central bank money printing is one of the engines of the inflation, will it ever calm down? Or is it going to go uh, to the moon? Uh, we have here one of the effects of this. So it's, it affects different countries in different ways. Uh, BBC uh, back in April was reporting um, doctors in Sri Lanka say hospitals are running out of medicines and essential supplies. Day by day, things are running out. If we get to the point where there's zero, then I don't know what will happen. Um, and the BBC continues, uh, Sri Lanka runs a free national healthcare system, just like Britain, uh, with millions of people rely on, uh, on the island, just like Britain. Uh, the largest doctors union on the island, Government Medical Officers Association, has blamed the crisis on poor financial and economic management, just like Britain, and is calling on people from overseas to donate supplies. It's published an extensive list of items, including blood pressure medicine and antidepressants and antibiotics, which they need. Uh, BBC um, also says, like millions across the country, doctors are struggling to obtain basics. Many say they're queuing for hours to get fuel for the cars to get to hospital. It's becoming very difficult to live. Salaries aren't going up, but the cost of living has skyrocketed. So even on a, on a handsome professional salary, when inflation starts to take hold, uh, relatively well-off people become suddenly no longer well-off at all and struggling to survive. And this is a threat that's uh, facing us. Uh, Al Jazeera was also talking about the Sri Lanka situation uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, they're saying Sri Lanka is to receive World Bank aid as economic crisis deepens. Um, they'll receive $600 million from the World Bank over the next four months to buy medicine and essential goods. Sorry, can I just ask for a translation there? When they say World Bank aid, do they mean loans? They mean loans. Right. They don't mean gifts, they mean loans. Um, and, of course, those come with conditions. Um, uh, Al Jazeera continues, uh, Sri Lanka is on the brink of bankruptcy. Nearly $7 billion of its total $25 billion in foreign debt is due for repayment this year. 
a severe shortage of foreign exchange. Do you think maybe COVID had something to do with that? Possibly. Uh, it means the country lacks the money to buy imported goods. Uh, the government has announced uh, the suspending repayment of foreign loans pending talks with the IMF, so in full debt crisis mode. Uh, the debt crisis is partly blamed on projects built with Chinese loans that have in fact not made money. So we see again the relatively rich countries, in this case China, um, are helping the relatively poor countries into a much worse situation. And we've seen that before. Yes. Uh, maybe we could uh, bring Brian onto the programme. Uh, Brian, just uh, interested in your thoughts on what we've seen so far. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just fascinated because we're seeing the, the pressure come on the Western economies and you've only got to speak to people locally to uh, understand, for example, uh, fuel prices has made a, a huge impact on people. Some of them I know reeling uh, from the fact that they've got to, they've got to use fuel work if they're on fairly low income uh, jobs. And so they're really starting to hurt. But this misery spreading not just across the Western states, where we could say it's self-imposed, but it's also spreading to third world countries. And if it's following a, it's following an absolute pattern, with the case being, of course, the, the war in Ukraine, which we'll come on to in a minute. We're seeing the only people that win out, it, win out of, of the economic collapse is the bank. And as you've just indicated, the fact that when money's produced from the uh, World Bank is just one example, uh, that's not money that's given away. It's money that is put in as a loan of which that country is controlled by the World Bank. So I, I think we're watching the, the Great Reset being enacted. Of course, controlling hand is in the international banking cartel. Yes. Okay, thanks for that, Brian. Uh, now let's move on. We haven't really talked about uh, uh, the local elections at all. And uh, well, we're not going to, but except for one area, and that's Northern Ireland. So let's uh, bring the Northern Irish election result on screen. Uh, and as everybody will know by now, Sinn Féin uh, being lauded right across the uh, British press as being the largest party in Northern Ireland now, uh, with 29% uh, of the vote. Uh, the DUP second with 21.3% of the vote, uh, the Alliance Party uh, third with 13.5% uh, of the vote. Um, so the DUP, just to, to clarify the situation here, the Sinn Féin didn't actually win this election. Uh, the DUP lost the election and th there's a, a subtle difference here uh, because they have actually uh, lost 6.7% of their vote. Um, which would have uh, you know, made things look significantly different. Um, and most of those votes went to the Alliance Party. Um, so Sinn Féin didn't have to do anything other than to sit and watch what was going on. Really, they didn't actually win any more seats than they won at any previous election. It was just that the DUP lost theirs uh, because of infighting and other nonsense that was going on. Uh, but what's at the back of this is what's interesting. So first of all, before we get to that, uh, here's Brandon Lewis. Uh, he, I will be meeting with the Northern Ireland party leaders later today, urging them to fulfil their responsibilities and restore the fully functioning of the institutions. The people of Northern Ireland deserve a stable and accountable devolved government, and it's up to the parties to deliver. Uh, well, one of the replies to that tweet uh, was this from Colin Dean, who said, scrap the protocol, uh, unfettered access to the UK internal market in both, is both ways 
uh, with no checks between GB and NI, no assembly until the protocol is gone. Uh, and that's basically what's at the back of, of the, uh, why there is unlikely to be uh, a, an assembly uh, or an executive formed in Northern Ireland. Uh, the DUP are already saying that they're going to boycott it unless the Northern Ireland Protocol is gone. So just let's just remind ourselves what this Northern Ireland Protocol is. If you remember back uh, at the height of uh, the Brexit campaign, we had a choice. Uh, we had a choice between David Cameron's idea of remaining in uh, the European Union, but opting out of the institutions we didn't like, uh, or uh, we had the choice of Theresa May's option, which was to leave the EU, but to opt into EU institutions that we did like. Um, but of course, as Theresa May attempted to uh, persuade everybody that her approach was different to David Cameron's, uh, then the issue of the so-called backstop uh, raised its head. And so Theresa May was then uh, in 2018 saying, this is why it's critical for the provision of a UK-EU joint customs territory, uh, that it's legally binding within the withdrawal agreement itself, so that no backstop to a backstop is required, because it was just getting so ridiculous, this idea of the backstop. Uh, and and uh, because the question at the bottom of all this was what was going to happen with the Northern Irish border, the Good Friday Agreement uh, made it very clear that there effectively is no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. There should be no restriction on the movement of people or goods. And of course, this put uh, the whole Brexit situation in a bit of a bind because what was, what was everybody going to do about Northern Ireland? So the, the pushback uh, was, uh, if you remember, that there could be no hard border down the RAC between Great Britain, mainland and Northern Ireland. Uh, well, anyway, if we put Theresa back on screen, uh, she was saying, she was trying to wriggle her way out of this situation. In the meantime, Sammy Wilson of the DUP was uh, shouting effectively uh, total betrayal. And indeed it was, because then of course, the backstop became effectively the issue that kicked Theresa May out of power. And we got the wonderful Boris as a result. Uh, and uh, so then Boris presented us with, with his deal and well, his, after all this talk about there being no border down the RAC, his deal ended up being uh, a significant border down the RAC. Uh, it ended up being a, there being a complex consent process, uh, no veto for the DUP, uh, that it protected the all-Ireland economy. And let's not worry about the so-called UK internal market anymore because it's the all-Ireland economy that had to be protected. Uh, it allows Britain to it allowed Britain to uh, pursue trade deals. Uh, this was part of the or the run up to the global Britain policy. Uh, and in fact, what was on offer was more permanent than the backstop. Uh, and so we ended up, David, with this border down the RAC, which the DUP has been saying uh, from the beginning that they weren't prepared to accept, but it was sort of pushed through anyway. Um, and uh, so now we have a situation where, in fact, you know, basically we have a united Ireland at this point, whereas whereas there's apparently no uh, government in Northern Ireland, but from an economic trade standpoint and certainly EU rules standpoint, it's an all-Ireland economy. It's an all-Ireland economy and the um, threat made by the, the leaders in the EU that uh, Britain can go, but the price will be uh, Ulster uh, seems to have been at least part partly delivered. Yes, so so the question is what happens now? Uh, Sinn Féin, of course, under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the, the whole th issue is uh, that politics in Northern Ireland is done on a consensual basis, so everybody has to consent or it doesn't happen. Uh, the DUP at this point are claiming that because they won 
40% of the votes uh, at that election uh, on the basis, standing on the platform of, of the backstop, as we might as well call it, uh, that they have then therefore demonstrated that there is no consensus in Northern Ireland for the Northern Ireland Protocol, and therefore it has to go. And according to the Good Friday Agreement, that is probably the case. Uh, but that puts everybody in a very difficult situation. So what's, what is the ultimate answer? Well, uh, what we're going to see, I think, is increased political chaos in Northern Ireland. And then what? Um, eventually, the, uh, I mean, Sinn Féin has already said they intend to hold some kind of uh, referendum on, uh, which, uh, on the status of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. So uh, we start to see that there may be a similar situation going on in Ireland as there is in Scotland. Well, what's going on in Scotland is a neverendum. It, it's, uh, it just goes on and on and on. Um, we have got something like only one in three, one in four Scots wanting a, an immediate referendum, but Nicola Sturgeon's announcing that she has some sort of mandate for it and is pushing ahead. Um, and uh, the, the, the absence of any change in Scottish voting intentions has been pretty well static, uh, with a, apart from a strange blip during the height of the COVID crisis uh, in favour of independence. Um, it's been pretty static um, at the 2014 result um, in all of the polls uh, of, of late. And uh, this shows a, a, a steady, uh, albeit relatively small majority in favour of staying as part of Great Britain, uh, a substantial but very much a minority in, in favour of leaving. And, it, and it's, it refuses to move. And this becomes just a, an endless discussion about the, uh, the status of the country. Um, about the constitutional arrangements, and that, that rather swamps everything else, and is being used by the SNP to cover up their uh, endless failings in terms of actually building ferries, running a health service, and all of these practical things, um, because everything's put back to, well, it's a constitutional issue, that trumps everything, that shows up the support, and that maintains their power base. If uh, Sinn Féin was to managed to pull off a referendum uh would that reinvigorate the campaign in scotland oh for sure yeah for sure yeah okay uh brian uh, any thoughts just briefly well at the end, end of the day i think it just proves very nicely that we can't trust boris and we shouldn't be surprised at, at all the troubles we've got from the time that that man has come in so problems with northland um we're supposedly building back better by sea is the country being destroyed and we're all to blame aren't we because uh, ultimately allowed this man to become prime minister of the uk yes well that, that is for sure okay let's move on to uh, legal issues and law uh, i just saw this uh, doing the rounds on social media and stick with it because it may seem like a, a non thing but i just want to sort of draw parallels here so somebody on social media was, was pushing this out. I have some extra electronics around my house that I'd uh, like to sell. So I signed up for an eBay account. In one hour, I posted six listings totaling less than 500 uh, pounds, UK pounds. Uh, I received an email that my account was suspended. I was told to call eBay. Uh, I've, been, I've called twice and been told that I'm banned from selling on eBay for life with no ability to appeal or hear the reasons for my ban. This is the key point, no ability to appeal or no ability to hear the reason for the ban, right? I'm not allowed to create a new account. Uh, they went on to say, on both phone calls, I asked to speak to a supervisor. In both cases, the agent promptly hung up on me. 
don't use eBay. They collected a ton of sensitive information and then insta banned me without uh, even having the courtesy explain, to explain why uh, or to let me appeal. And so uh, that I thought was quite interesting. But the thought that occurred to me, David, was, uh, well, what, happened, what would happen if the legal system worked like that? And because the legal system is heading in this direction, and this is really what I want to raise a flag on today, because uh, if we start back in 2015, uh, we were talking about uh, Brian Levison, famously of the Levison inquiry into the press and so on, but he started a program uh, in 2015 on the digitization of the criminal justice system and the, and the, the legal system, the court system in this country. And that process has been running for a number of years now. So uh, he was talking about uh, modernization of justice through technology and innovation being at the heart of the plans at the Ministry of Justice. Uh, he recommended the use of more technology to allow remote hearings, uh, tighter case management by justice, justice judges, sorry, including inappropriate cases, the provision of timetables for evidence and speeches, more high quality equipment in courts to ensure footage from police body worn cameras can be shown flexible opening hours in magistrates, courts, and so on, contracts requiring greater efficiency from those who deliver prisoners to court, and so on. But nonetheless, the main point is the more and more uh, virtual hearings, and I believe the number at the moment is something like 3,000 virtual hearings a month uh, in the UK, right? So uh, let's move on to this, uh, because this is the Law Society from 2019, and they're talking about algorithm use in the criminal justice system. They produced a report on this because the question is, what is the direction of travel here? Is it just about effectively holding uh, hearings over Zoom uh, and therefore people not having to, having to travel into courtrooms and uh, building on efficiencies around that? Or are they actually taking it to the point where we end up in a, a sort of similar situation to that guy on eBay where uh, you're taken to court, a decision is made, uh, you, you don't really, there's no transparency on that decision. Who's actually making the decision? In fact, is it AI that's making the decision? Well, if we put that, uh, that uh, article back on screen again, uh, here's the quote. Uh, talking about AI uh, can make law enforcement and administration of justice more efficient and consistent. But using algorithms without questioning them or explaining them to the public could lead to decisions which threaten human rights and undermine public trust in the justice system. So really what I'm... Uh, the, the point I'm making here is this type of thing, this type of justice is on the way. Uh, it's being talked about within the criminal, within the, the, the law uh, infrastructure and so on. And just to give an idea of what might be driving this, of course, we talked about uh, a week or so ago, the fact that magistrates are going to be taking on many more cases, criminal cases, and they're going to be allowed to offer uh, uh, jail, uh, prison sentences up to a year instead of up to six months without needing to send that to a judge for uh, judgment. But let's just think about uh, the number of the backlog in cases. So if we go back a year to May last year, there were 54,000 unheard cases in England and Wales. By June, that was up to 61,000 cases. And by the end of September, 23% of the backlog, which is uh, 15, sorry, 13,202 in September, uh, was were outstanding for more than a year, and that was the highest uh, backlog, uh, you know, in terms of outstanding cases for uh, uh, since 2014. Um, and so, there is clearly pressure on the criminal justice system because COVID is the gift that keeps on giving, David, and that pressure has come through COVID. Uh, and so, we need to head more and more in a digital direction. I am not getting a, a pleasant feeling from this. 
idea. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with this. Uh, a criminal justice system that's more efficient and consistent. They, it, they don't say correct. They don't say error-free. They don't say just. Right? Now, it's, it, it's, if it's consistently and efficiently wrong, um, if it's consistently and efficiently unjust, that achieving those, those advantages of efficiency and consistency help us not one bit. Um, the uh, reduction in jury trials is a major problem. These are our last and strongest safeguards against tyranny. Um, we know from Scotland where the idea of getting standing up before one judge, albeit a, a more highly trained sheriff rather than uh, the equivalent of a Scottish Justice of the Peace, uh, and getting a year um, is used as a, as a means of social control. We saw this with, uh, uh, with the Robert Greene case. Uh, this is where they went wrong with Alex Salmond. They gave him a jury, and the jury found him uh, innocent. And uh, so we, if, we lose, if we lose jury trials, we lose one of our last holds on liberty. Um, and uh, the, the use of the technology for reasons which are not um, um, founded on improving the outcomes, improving the degree of justice, improving the, uh, improving the degree of transparency, but rather are um, uh, about processing people into the justice system more efficiently. I find this deeply disturbing. Yes, uh, and Brian, of course, the use of AI, uh, of course, uh, if they, as they head towards that, uh, uh, actually rolling that out, they're going to start with you know, lesser offences like speeding or, or whatever, uh, but that uh, becomes a slippery slope. Uh, absolutely. What, what uh, has been in my mind as you're talking through the segment, Mike, is, is the family courts, because they have been enough over the years that you have effectively secret courts. Uh, the press might possibly be allowed in, but much of what they hear, the public is not. Uh, in the court, there is no jury. These are courts that take people's children away. And what I found myself thinking was, um, let's think of all the data which is collected on these by social services, for example. All that goes through some sort of algorithm, some sort of AI process. And the next thing is taking the decision. The people got such a big score against them, their children taken away. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with what Dave about the jury, but people should remember that fam the family court system in UK is inherently a secret court with no jury, and yet it has the power to remove people's children. Uh, yes, okay. Well, look, uh, sorry, sorry, wrong button. Uh, let's, uh, let's just uh, move on to this uh, quickly. Uh, this is Andrews and Arnold, an internet service provider in the UK, and of course they have been uh, over the years very determined to uh, take a position that they are not uh, censoring or limiting anybody's use of the internet in any way. Um, but they, and I just want to say thanks to Patrick for sending this through this morning. Uh, this uh, is headlined UK sanctions law, Andrews and Arnold and domain blocking. Uh, because over the last uh, couple of several weeks, we've been talking about uh, the restrictions on uh, particularly Russian media and so on, uh, and whether that was going to uh, result in the UK's equivalent of the Great Firewall of China. So let's just have a look at what Andrews and Arnold are saying here. As you know, Andrews and Arnold has a strong view on privacy. 
uh, and the mere uh, conduit nature of internet access. We don't monitor or intercept or block internet traffic. That remains our stance, and so we were surprised to learn last week that the UK Parliament has passed a new law, seemingly without any consultation with ISPs, obliging internet access providers to attempt to pervert access, or sorry, prevent access to internet services run by sanctioned people. Uh, we, are not, we are not well placed to engage in this kind of behaviour, uh, but we have no option but to comply. So what is this about? Well, first of all, they're not quite correct in saying it, they have passed, that someone has passed a new law. This was secondary legislation, a statutory instrument. So let's just put it on screen. This is the rank, Russia Sanctions EU Exit Amendment number nine, Regulations 2022. And of course, as is normal with uh, you know statutory instruments of this type, yes, they're laid down uh, in front of parliament and there's supposed to be a debate. Uh, but in fact, uh, there rarely is any scrutiny from Parliament whatsoever. It's just a, a tick box exercise. Um, so as a result of these uh, regulations, Ofcom issued an open letter. So let's just have a look at what they were saying. Uh, this is an open letter to the industry, uh, all internet service providers, about uh, new restrictions on the provision of certain internet services to or for the benefit of, quote, designated persons. As part of the government's package of sanctions following Russia's invasion in Ukraine on Wednesday, the 27th of April 2022, the Secretary of State for Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Affairs made new regulations imposing restrictions on the provision of certain Internet services to or for the benefit of designated persons. Uh, the current Secretary of, currently, the Secretary of State has named TV Novosti and uh, uh, Rosia uh, Segednaya. Uh, as designated persons for these purposes. Uh, so that's RT, for example, uh, included in that. Uh, the regulations relate to the provision of internet access services, social media services and application stores. They were laid before Parliament and came into force on February the 20, or sorry, on Friday the 29th of April 2022. Um, the regulations required different actions to be taken depending on the nature of the services that are offered. So providers of internet access services must take reasonable steps to prevent users of the service in the United Kingdom from accessing by means of that service an internet service provided by TV Novosti uh, or the others. So um, that basically means domain level blocking as uh, Andrews and Arnold were pointing out. Uh, providers of social media services must take reasonable steps to prevent content that is generated directly on the service or uploaded or shared on the service by the Russian media being encountered by a user of the service in the United Kingdom. So therefore, Facebook and Twitter required to block access to those uh, to that content to the UK. Uh, providers of application stores through which an application for an internet service may be downloaded or otherwise accessed must take reasonable steps to prevent users of the application store in the United Kingdom from downloading or otherwise accessing by means of that service an internet service provided by Russian media. So you can't download the RT app uh, anymore. Uh, and uh, the regulations appoint Ofcom as the enforcement authority responsible for ensuring compliance, including granting us information gathering powers and additional powers to impose monetary penalties of up to one million pounds in relevant circumstances where it is necessary. Sorry, yeah, I think that should say where it is necessary, but it, uh, that's their mistake. Where it is necessary for Ofcom to take enforcement action uh, we would follow the general processes and procedures set out in our regulatory enforcement guidelines. So there you go. Let's just come back to Andrews and Arnold for a second here. Uh, they finished off by saying, right now we do not consider it reasonable for us to attempt to identify 
what other domains or URLs might relate to people in the, uh, on the UK sanctions list. So we have no as we have no mechanism for doing this, uh, we will keep this under review. If, for example, Ofcom publishes a list, uh, and we would encourage that, uh, we will consider switching to using it, assuming that there is a means by which we can verify that the domains on that list are indeed operated by designated persons. So there seems to be a hint there that Andrews and Arnold aren't just going to take Ofcom's word for it. But nonetheless, uh, this is where we're at, David, um, because and that has come via a statutory instrument. Uh, I didn't see the mainstream press really giving this much coverage. None at all that I saw. And, and this is ad admitting several quite interesting things. It seems to be admi admitting that um, the UK government and UK media cannot argue against the Russian viewpoint because we're banning it. Um, it seems to be admitting that if there was two sides of the story being put to the British people, the British people would be at least persuaded that there was more to the issue, that the British people would move their opinion. So they're, they're, they're essentially saying that they are preventing information being put before the British people in order to control what those people think, um, which is rather totalitarian. We are meant to be the free democracy, the free West, and we're not being that. We are being controlled, and and the government is now preventing uh, the wrong opinions from uh, reaching our delicate ears. Yes. So put that uh, together with the online safety bill uh, and uh, also the new uh, broadcast regulations. And I think what's happening here, David, uh, is of particular concern. Maybe ask Brian actually. Uh, because Ofcom is obviously already the regulator for the broadcast media. It's going to be the regulator for the internet in terms of safety. It's uh, going to be the regulator for uh, online streaming platforms to make sure that they aren't pushing out the inappropriate narrative and also make, to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, so-called uh, public, uh, well, the likes of the BBC and Channel 4 and so on get precedence on smart TVs and so on. Uh, and now they are going, also going to be making sure that uh, uh, internet service providers are bro blocking uh, appropriate content. Um, that puts a lot of power in one uh, NGO's hands. Uh, and bearing in mind that that NGO is largely staffed in terms of its board at board level with either BBC or ex-BBC people, that's got to be of concern as well. Yeah, this this gets to them, sir. Sorry, that, sorry, that was for you, Brian. Uh, right, okay. Well, of course, uh, draw viewers and listeners' attention to the fact that if you go back into the UK column archives and Ofcom, you'll find that we covered Ofcom in a lot of detail um, many, well, several years ago now. What were we pointing out? What you've said, which is Ofcom staffed ex-BBC um ex bbc people part bbc people were drawing bbc pen so we've got two things going on here we have the bbc is the uk state propaganda machine and now the bbc is being used well we call it an ngo but of course it's government it isn't non-government uh, we've got a regulatory body which is essentially also 
uh, the BBC. So my mind, it's my age, I'm afraid. I just go back to the Cold War time when we looked at the Soviet Union and we pointed out the fact that you couldn't trust the Soviet Union because uh, free speech was controlled by eight-run media system. And yet here we are in the UK in 2022, and what you are describing is a media and propaganda system. So in very, very dangerous times in UK, but I think also David had a point there that uh, why have they to do this? Because not even the power of the BBC, supported by the other channel, are able to counter factual information coming from the Russian side at the moment. So we are actually seeing that the truth, the, the sword of truth cutting and the only that the UK can try and deal with it is creating a, um, a system of propaganda and state-controlled media. It's very sinister. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, look, uh, I'm just going to uh, quickly do some ads here. Um, so here is, uh, it, well, let's just say if you would like to support the UK column, uh, then head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you could uh, support us via the UK column shop. Uh, but uh, also you could uh, share material on the various platforms. Um, we'll just remind everybody once again that um, uh, the Better Way conference is taking place uh, on the weekend of uh, the 20th to the 22nd of May. Uh, that is uh, being promoted or organized by Tess Laurie and her World Council for Health uh, and absolutely amazing list of speakers on that. Uh, and Brian, just very quickly, uh, that uh, interview with Tess Laurie uh, will be up on the UK Column website this afternoon. That's, that's the intentions. Please look out of that and apologies for the slight delay. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Look, uh, I think what we're going to do at this point is take a, a quick technical break because uh, uh, and see if we can sort out uh, the problem with, uh, with Brian's audio. So if you just bear with us, uh, we'll see what we can do about that. Okay, we're back. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, hopefully things are better. Um, I've just been told, by the way, uh, that the we just put the Better Way conference uh, back on screen there, Stephanie, please, uh, that uh, this event actually uh, has been, uh, well, cancelled or at least postponed because uh, the venue uh, pulled out on them. Um, so we will get the, the details on what's going on there and let everybody know. And this would be called cancel culture, the culture that the BBC is, assures us does not exist. Yes, indeed. Um, now let's move on to Ukraine quickly. And just I just wanted to, to begin with this. Uh, Liz Truss has written an article. Uh, do you think she wrote it, David? Oh, I'm sure she wrote every word. I'm sure she didn't. Um, and of course, uh, it's just full of the usual rhetoric. Putin, she says... Hope to take Ukraine by storm, but victory continues to elude him three months later. This is testament to how gravely he underestimated the will of the Ukrainian nation. He's been blindsided by the strength of the Ukrainian fightback uh, and the free world uniting to end his appalling war. Uh, Putin cannot and will not break Ukraine. And so it goes on. I'm not going to bore anybody with any more of it. Uh, but that was uh, obviously published in De Velt, uh, and uh, in other European uh, uh, outlets. So uh, anyway, Brian, the question is, or I think uh, you want to recap a little bit on uh, on how, how Ukraine was betrayed by NATO in the West? Well, uh, yeah, Mike, hopefully my sound is better and people can hear me. 
yes, I thought it was important that we just popped up on screen part of the report we did on the 4th of May, where one of the key things that I was emphasising was that the West is prolonging the war. And of course, the longer the war goes on in Ukraine, the more people who are killed and maimed and the more damage there is to the infrastructure of the country. So um, there's no doubt that pumping in the money, pumping in the weapons, stopping Zelensky, however much of a fool we might think he is, but there have been indications he's been trying to negotiate with, with the Russians, but those were undermined by the West. He was advised, and uh, the allegations are, that includes by Boris Johnson, that he shouldn't negotiate with Russia. The war's prolonged and more damage gets done to the country. So I, I thought it was important against the increasing rhetoric from the BBC to have a little look at some of the details about the battle going on. And in this segment, we haven't got all the answers, but we're saying to people, you've really got to try and search the internet, look deeper, if you're going to find out what is really taking place on the battlefield. If you believe the BBC, then the Russians are incompetent, they're bogged down, they can't feed themselves, their equipment doesn't work, um, they're a complete shambles and they're being beaten by this very brave and uh, limited Ukrainian army. Clearly, this is not true. Um, but let's have a look at some of the indicators that we should perhaps consider for the battle. Uh, so if we bring the uh, next uh, slide on, uh, we've, we've just got a couple of points here. Uh, the first one that will come up is UK, uh, Ukraine has no effective air cover or air defense. Their air force is gone. Uh, yes, they are getting some short-range uh, surface-to-air or anti-aircraft weapons from the West, uh, but this is not significant in the scale of the battle. And, of course, if you don't have air cover over a battlefield, you're in big trouble. And then we also got to accept that uh, they're suffering huge losses in men. And this is no doubt, there is no doubt that this is happening because the... Uh, the Ukrainian army, let's give credit to the professionals who have fought to date. Let's just leave aside any accusations of bad behavior or atrocities. They've fought incredibly hard, but nevertheless, they sustain huge losses. And their replacements are either older men or people who are largely untrained. And we're going to have listened to some video clips in a minute, which help illustrate this point. Um, so that's the, the starting point as to what's going on in the battlefield. Uh, but the other thing to consider is that because they're in this state, if, if we're on to point three, the next slide, um, Ukraine is, is, is able to fight in the built-up areas. It can't fight in the open countryside of Ukraine because Russia and the uh, Ukrainian militia are simply too strong. So what does this do? It drives the Ukrainian troops into the built-up areas, and that automatically means that those conurbations are going to be damaged. Uh, the West says it's bringing in sophisticated weapons, so we can bring this up as the next point. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you follow the reports through, uh, Ukrainians are getting uh, minimal training in the weapon systems, maybe six days. They're then expected to go back to, U uh, to Ukraine and train other people how to use these weapon systems. This is just not tenable. It's rhetoric from the West, but for the Ukrainians, it means that more people are going to die on the battlefield. 
And then we can also add in a point, which I think is an important one, that Ukraine, like Boris's government, is beginning to believe its own propaganda. So the West is consistently saying that they're winning when the uh, reality of what's going on is clearly that they are not winning. Um, on to the next one. Um, we know what the Russian tactic is at the moment, and that is essentially that the Russians are able via long-range artillery to shell the Ukrainians in their defensive positions. This means that the Russians are controlling the battlefield without having to commit forces. And what, what is the advantage for Russia and, and the militia themselves is they are not having to take the heavy casualties that the main Ukrainian forces are. So we hear from the BBC, we're reading in the press that the Russian plan is not working. But many people have pointed out that the West doesn't even know what the Russian, doesn't know what the Russian plan was, doesn't know what it is. So the claim it is not working is clearly uh, a suspect one. And in any case, a very slow, persistent advance from the Russians is the Russians winning, particularly when they, they're inflicting the casualties. So I, I think the key bit for Ukraine and Zelensky himself, he has been played, is being played by the West. They've destroyed U, uh, Ukraine as a country. It's about to be destroyed as a nation state. You've already got Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians. The West is going to do the damage by prolonging the war, uh, stopping the negotiations with Russia. And now we've got this very pernicious uh, opening of the idea that Poland might commit troops to establish uh, some form of protectorate in in the western side of, of Ukraine. So I'll just pass back to you uh, briefly, for both of you, for, for comment. Uh, there is so much happening on the battlefield, but when you, you look at the facts, none of it is good for Ukraine. Well, this is a key takeaway, the, and this was predicted by, by people four or five years out, uh, watching the, uh, the, the policy, uh, the statements from, the, from NATO that Ukraine was definitely going to be a member um, and, and that it was not going to be a neutral state and realising that, that the only way that that would end was, was with uh, Russian military action and the country of uh, Ukraine getting wrecked. Um, there doesn't seem to be any uh, serious effort at any sort of peace process. The rhetoric is painting Putin as someone with whom you cannot negotiate, you should not negotiate, and you must not negotiate. So what way, what peaceful way out of the conflict is there under those circumstances? Uh, and the, the claim that basically the Ukrainian forces are going to drive the Russians back uh, when in eight years uh, they couldn't drive the militias back in the Donbass doesn't seem to me to be credible either. So does this just go on forever? Uh, is it a war without end? Uh, that cannot be in the interests of the Ukrainian people, the Russian people, or anybody else. Um, but that seems to be the current policy. Mm. Uh, David, agree, agree with that. I'll, I'll just add a war without end. Well, maybe it does have an end that the Ukrainians simply run out of men at the, the rate they're being killed. Let's just have a look at three little clips. The first two are very short, uh, but this is formal Canadian uh, media 
talking to a man codenamed Shadow who's been fighting uh, in Ukraine. Let's listen to what he says because we can pick up quite a lot about how the battle's really going. So, you've just come from roughly where? From the east? Uh, we were uh, in the eastern front, uh, in the Donbass region. What was that like? Um, I have one word to describe and it's, it's just hell. Yeah, hell. And why? Because every day you're getting casualties. Every day you're getting your friends getting killed. And it's days after days. And most of the missions, actually, of my uh, uh, my friends uh, that they come from the Marines uh, from the States, it was just going to recover dead bodies of our friends that were killed in action from their previous patrol. So there we are, that, uh, that first clip where he's giving the reality he is watching people being killed on a daily basis. So the fact that we have silence from the BBC about the Ukrainian casualties only adds insult to injuries that Ukraine, the Ukrainian military are being destroyed, but uh, the West doesn't want to talk about that. So let's hear the next thing this man says, because now we go simply from the fact that there's death occurring on the battlefield to, the, he, to us getting an idea about the competency of the troops. What has, what has been your main job there? Uh, for me, I was just uh, used as an uh, uh, infantry soldier. Actually, um, I was paired up uh, with the Canadian sniper Wally. So I was his uh, teammate, so we were always to, together. And I, made, I was making sure to help him as much as I can. And I was always following him everywhere. Uh, I was carrying ammunition. Um, so yes, mainly that was my, uh, my main job over there. Did you find yourself in direct contact? Oh yes. Oh yes. You want to take me through that? So you're not talking about just artillery, you're talking about direct contact. So the, me, me and Wally's first missions in Irpian, uh, it was uh, to go into a apartment, a apartment building and set up a sniper position from there. So we go up, we set ourselves, and then we start observing. And then maybe like 10 minutes after, like huge explosion the building shakes all the window breaks and then i find myself on the ground and i i remember i said what the hell is that and then i just like crawl into like a safe room you know so we just got hit by a tank he, he shelled the building just above us like just like he missed us by like three meters So the, so the uh, point with this clip is that uh, he acted as number two to a sniper. The sniper was obviously professionally trained, but he admits he wasn't. So at the end of the day, that was not a professional team uh, fighting on the battlefield. And what is he then describing that the Russians were very close to taking them out? Later, he describes how they did manage to escape. 
Um, but he says that the, the fire was so intense. So we've got the death on the battlefield, we've got people fighting, and it's not only the mercenaries, it's also the Ukrainian reserves who are simply untrained. Let's just listen to his last comment because he shifts focus uh, to talk about uh, events in the east of Ukraine. How long ago were you in the east, in Donbass? I was about uh, maybe 10 days ago. We did uh, approximately one week there, because at first we, we were fighting in Irpin, then after that we f uh, with our group uh, we freed the city from the, the Russian, and then me and, and my, me and Wally and, my, and our unit we got sent uh, to fight in the east, and then yeah, in the east it was it was total different uh, experience because in Irpin it was mainly urban fighting. But in the in the east, it was like the vibe was like World War Two. It's like, like rain, mud, fields, um, trenches. Um, yeah, and it was hard because there was there was an entire Russian tank tank regiment on the other side of the valley, but we could not really do anything because we only had like we had one javelin with us. And actually, Wally learned in two hours how to operate the javelin. And then just like that, we became a javelin operating crew, like me and Wally. So after that, we were we were always sent on missions with the, the javelin, right? And then for me, what I remember is uh, I was in the trench and then I removed my helmet, right? And then I put it on the ground and like the sun is coming out and like ah, it's a pretty good day maybe I will go out and just like talk to those to my Ukrainian friends right so I'm about to come out I put my first feet on the little step and then it just happened huge explosion uh, so I fell in the trench on, on my back and it's just like in the movies like in my ears like ding like that little sound then I'm like, what? What the hell? And then I get up. That's and then now and then, then I understood what what happened. Like we just got shot by a Russian tank, and it was like very precise shot. They could they, they could see us very good, right? They shot right between our two friends, and then I got up. I put uh, back my helmet and I look. I see one of my friends dead, isn't is not moving. He's not moving, he's just lying on the ground. He's dead, it's it sure is dead, like there's no way to uh, to, sur to survive that. <laughs> and then I looked uh, to the other one, he was like j just a couple of feet uh, from me. And then he was still breathing, but no legs. He didn't have any legs. So that really spells out the reality. Uh, he describes one man dying, the, the man he describes with no legs dies very quickly. Um, but what have we got? We've got untrained people with just one javelin, although we're told the West is sending all of these weapons. They're clearly not getting to the front line and they are not trained to use the weapons. So consequently, they are dying and being injured. Uh, but of course, the BBC, I'm going to keep coming back onto the UK's 
state uh, media does not want to talk about this. If we move on to the next uh, slide, we've got the BBC uh, in the last day reporting um, about um, uh, what's happening in Ukraine. They're very worried, of course, about the nuclear option. But in this particular article, if we just uh, uh, advance it slightly, we'll see that they introduce statistics about Russian losses. So there's no detail about Ukrainian losses, uh, but we're just detailing what the BBC thinks has been lost by the Russians. And if we look at the source, so you should be able to highlight that with a um, with an arrow, first of all, confirming this is military losses apparently verified by analysts with photos. And down at the bottom, we see where this has come from. Uh, it's an organization called Oinks, Oryx, sorry, Oryx. And uh, if we go and have a look at uh, them in the next slide, um, what do we see if we come on to the next slide? Um, yes, well, give us your money because we're too poor to really do the job properly. Uh, but apparently we are able to analyze the whole of the uh, losses of the Ukrainians and the Russians. And who is doing this? Well, if we call in the, uh, the key text here, we've got two people a Stein Mitzer and a Joost Olimans, uh, who are two military analysts. I can't find anything out about them. Uh, but if you uh, highlight the sections there, Mike, uh, the second highlight will give the key words that they are independent. And uh, trust us, because we're going to give you all the detail that's necessary. So I had a look through their information. And as you see in the next slide, uh, they're pretty good on the Western narrative. So this is a statement about Russian false flag operations in February, leading up to February 2022. No evidence, just a statement saying that the Russians engage with it. And then if we move on again, we can see that if you go to their website, you can indeed find a lot of information about losses. Uh, so this first one is Ukrainian losses. Um, it was puzzling. It's dated February 24, but actually when you click on the, the links in the material itself, uh, you will see that uh, what comes up is, um, is detail, uh, which goes up into May. So I think that this is up to date, but it's a bit difficult to tell. But what have we got here? Uh, we've got talk about massive loss, losses by the Ukrainians. And um, uh, if you go to the, uh, the next image, uh, we should be able to just uh, click and that will scroll up, I think. Um, well, this next one, this is the one. Uh, this is uh, the tweeting out detail, and that is animated. And you will see that the Ukrainian losses just go on and on and on and on. So uh, we won't get to the end because it takes too long to get to the end of the losses of the Ukrainian material. Um, if we put in contrast to that, how do they look at the Russians? And if we switch on to the next slide here, uh, well, suddenly this is highlighted by being called an attack on Europe. So they're independent, apparently. There's no bias in this organization, but the Russians have not attacked Ukraine. They've attacked Europe. Uh, if we go and look at their statistics on Russian losses, it's laid out in the same way. So there's, there's quite a lot of detail comes up and they tell you about how they 
uh, have logged the information. But we, we suddenly see that the Russians are suffering massive losses in comparison to this uh, miraculous Ukrainian army. And uh, if we do a little bit of a comparison in the data, if this organization is uh, to be believed, and, and uh, if you hit the button again, Mike, we can just focus on tanks. Uh, so for the, uh, for the Ukrainians, we've got 66 tanks destroyed. Uh, but for the Russians, we've apparently got 337. And uh, my point is that uh, the BBC is using this source uh, is this source accurate? Well, certainly not if you compare it to other people reporting on losses. Um, and I'm just going to highlight here this site. I mentioned it before, the Moon of Alabama, which has got some really excellent analysis on the battle itself. And if we bring in just two of the headlines here, we've, we've got one data on the fact that the Russian artillery is causing huge uh, losses and fatalities in the Ukrainian forces. And the second one here is that Ukraine's army is in very bad shape. More fighting will only destroy it. And I'll say to our audience today, please do your own research on this because you'll find many very good sites now digging into what's happening on the battlefield and coming to a conclusion that the BBC does not like. And that is that the slaughter of the Ukrainian armed forces is being perpetuated by the uh, West's arms and, and money that's coming into the country. We'll try and do more on this in future, in future UK column news, but uh, it's clear that with the lockdown on media in the UK, uh, the truth is simply not going to come out about what's really happening on the ground. Yes. OK, well, thank you very much for that, Brian. Now, uh, we're just going to very quickly uh, move on to Kitty Joe. But before we get there, uh, let's just remind ourselves about uh, the uh, exposed leader of the ex-army group that's plotting mayhem as 200 members of his sinister anti-vax group meet in Staffordshire Park to practice smashing through police lines. Uh, and uh, of course, that is uh, former uh, Royal Fusilier Danny Glass and uh, uh, Kitty Joe last week, if you remember, was making the point that the police had decided to raid his property, but they didn't just raid his home. Uh, they raided his mother's home as well because uh, he was there looking after her. Now we got uh, a communication from Charles Mallet, who, of course, is the uh, former uh, uh, detective constable of, from Gloucestershire Police, uh, who resigned uh, some time ago over COVID policy and so on. Uh, just wanted to quick, very quickly run through what he said as a response to Katie Joe's uh, uh, report last week. Uh, Dear Mike Bryan, David, uh, I listened with interest and disappointment, though a little surprised to Katie Joe's piece about the arrest of Danny Glass on the 2nd of May 22, uh, UK Column News. As Brian articulated at the end, the problem lies with how legislation is drawn up and the way that police use it in a tactical fashion, in particular the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 PACE. Uh, so in this instance, it sounds as though Glass's own house was entered and searched using a Section 8 PACE search warrant uh, and that his mother's house was entered using uh, under Section 17 PACE and searched under Section 18 PACE. Katie Joe said that Glass had not been living in his own house for about two weeks. Uh, the de this demonstrates exactly how the system can be manipulated. It would appear that the police wanted to search both premises, but based on the intelligence, they did not have grounds to, therefore the warrant is applied for on the premises that Glass does own or control his own house. 
uh, which need not be occupied at the time of executing the warrant. Once Glass is inside his mother's house, police, police may use Section 17 to enter in order to arrest and then Section 18 to search. Uh, the system of grading intelligence should be the control measure which prevents wrongful searches taking place, but the system is vulnerable here too. In Glass's case, he will be considered as a perfectly legitimate target by police because of his position on the so-called vaccines uh, and the conduct of the UK government. It is perfectly credible that police were provided with fictitious accounts of weapons held by Glass by members of the public uh, or others. Uh, the grading of such intelligence, if done correctly, could not have resulted in an application to a magistrate who is, of course, a volunteer for a warrant. Uh, with regards to the crossing out of one month and replacing it with three months for the validity of the warrant, I suspect this is because an old form is being used. A search warrant granted by a magistrate is valid for three months from the date of issue, so Glass was not singled out for special treatment. Presumably with the knowledge that Glass was spending time at his mother's house, police timed the application for the warrant very particularly. Uh, and he goes on to say the episode does illustrate how the application of legislation can be made to be almost entirely subjective. It also demonstrates how badly police were able to treat people uh, who hold the uh, wrong views and yet face no consequences when acting in error. One can scarcely imagine this happening to a climate change activist. I think that's a very valid point. That's a very valid point, but we can uh, imagine and we have seen it happening to people who are campaigning um, for the children who have been abused, these are the same tactics that are used uh, in, the, in the world of child abuse and when campaigners are saying things which are uh, unpopular with uh, the powers that be, uh, then similar abuses uh, and similar uh, fluid interpretations of the law and indeed cases where the um, uh, official action is, is really just made up on the spot is almost without any uh, justification, however thin, based on legislation. Uh, th these become more and more common and there doesn't seem to be any redress. Indeed. So let's just finish off the, what he said here. Uh, if we just put that back up. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. Uh, for the record, none of the firearm searches I attended over the course of a year resulted in seizure of a firearm. However, the supposed offender was always well known to police. And this is simply part of the pointless pattern of disrupting the activities of usual, usually minor criminals. With this in mind, there was no chance that Glass would be uh, asked to attend a voluntary interview. Um, so, uh, Katie Joe, let's say welcome to the programme. I'd just be interested in, in your thoughts on that, first of all. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, yeah, I have spoken to uh, Danny recently. I'm doing a written piece for the column on this arrest and on the background of the Alphas. Um, it's, we, we're, still, we're still finding things out at the moment. I can't actually say anything but I will have some more information on exactly who it was that was arrested, uh, arrested Danny. Um, it's not all it seems. So we'll, uh, I'll be back with more information on that okay. one. Okay, brilliant. Well, let's uh, move on then to Animal Farm. Yeah, Animal Farm. The children at Hope have been studying Animal Farm in their English literature lessons with their brilliant teacher, Sadie. And over the Easter holidays, I ran a theatre workshop with them where they performed a 10 minute adaptation of the play. Um, and on Thursday, we took them to Canterbury to see the latest production of um, Animal Farm. So as we arrived at the theatre, we could see crowds and crowds of school children being herded like cattle. Um, and it felt almost surreal and I, I was wondering in my mind were they drawing the same comparisons with the novel that, that I was you know at this at this time and or were they 
you know, drawing the same comparisons that The Guardian made in their, in their uh, report, which I'll, I'll come to later. Um, being a performer, one of my biggest pet hates uh, when someone is on the stage is, um, is disrespect from the audience. And unfortunately, the teenagers, the school children were really noisy and disruptive. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is gonna ruin the whole thing for me. Uh, but a testimony to the excellence of the play itself is that after the first scene, um, it became so hard hitting that every person in the audience was captivated and there wasn't another peep out of them. The award-winning creative team have produced an extremely powerful piece of theatre that is well worth going to see. It is directed by Robert Icke, who is in fact a distant uh, cousin of David Icke's, um, although they have never met apparently. And from what I can gather from his interviews, they are not on the same page with regards to their opinions either. This isn't the first of George Orwell's novels that Robert has directed. He co-adapted and co-directed a version of 1984 that was performed on Broadway in 2017 that was so gory and intense that four audience members fainted during one performance. Animal Farm 2 is not for the faint-hearted, younger children or children with a sensitive nature. It moved many adults to tears. Another part of the creative team is the multi-award winning theatre designer, Bunny Christie. She won her third Olivier Award and Tony Award for the incredible production of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, a fantastic adaptation I was lucky enough to see in the West End. It is a favourite book of mine and the show blew me away. With Animal Farm, the use of minimalist set, extremely clever lighting on the black, mostly empty stage, and the use of slow motion pauses during the dramatic chase and fight scenes gave an incredibly cold, dangerous and dramatic atmosphere. And the final piece of the jigsaw in this outstanding creative team is the incredibly realistic puppetry by Toby Ollie. Toby went straight from puppetry course, uh, from the puppetry course at the Royal Central uh, School of Speech and Drama into Warhorse at the National, where he played the hind legs of Joey the Horse before moving to the head when it transferred to the West End. If you ever had the chance to see Warhorse, you will know what I mean when I say the horse puppets in that play were so realistic. It was hard to watch some of the brutal scenes. In an interview posted by Stage Talk, Toby says, the challenge with Animal Farm is that every character apart from the farmer is an animal. We have over 30 life-sized puppets from a huge cart horse to tiny pigeons. So it's a question of how to get maximum range of articulation in so many puppets with only 14 operators. Boxer the cart horse has three operators, but Clover, who we changed from a horse to a cow, and only have two. All of the animal characters talk, which is a challenge. But we found a really interesting way of making it work. We tell the story using each animal's physicality, but when you hear the dialogue, it's as if their actions are being translated to you. We're also shifting perspective during the show. So you see moments of high octane action in miniature puppet scale and the intimate internal moments with life-sized puppets. The construction of the animals took eight and a half months, the longest puppet build we've ever undertaken. The puppetry is so cleverly lifelike that the murders leave you feeling stunned and shocked. And there were many wet cheeks amongst the audience. Some children had to leave as it was so upsetting. And one of the students we took, it was more traumatic than her grandfather's funeral, bless her. This is an outstanding production of a timeless story that is always relevant. It is a book that near enough every generation study at some point in their education, 
and every person will draw their own comparisons to what is relevant at that time. As before, I said, The Guardian, in their review, made the most obvious of these, and I know it isn't going to come as a surprise. Um, Arifa Akbar says, ever since 1945, when George Orwell published his anthropomorphized farmyard allegory of the Russian Revolution and Soviet slide into totalitarianism, it has felt newly relevant in whichever era it, it is reviewed, not least our own of contested truths and lies. But it speaks especially loudly in a week where Vladimir Putin risks being confirmed as Russia's latter-day Napoleon, the pugnacious boar and autocratic leader of Animal Farm. There is not surprisingly not one comparison in the article to the current global slide into totalitarianism that is happening in every country at a rapid rate right now. The mainstream media and its huge part to play in this, with its propaganda and gaslighting, is portrayed perfectly in the play by Squealer. Reassuring the animals it's for the greater good and you will be happier than before and you should be grateful for this life of never-ending hard work just to make ends meet, whilst the pigs, the fat cats, live a life of Riley. The transition of Napoleon as he becomes more human-like was like watching him turn into Boris Johnson. His gluttonous behaviour while the rest of the farmyard animals starved to death and were worked to death was a clear comparison for me of the party gate shenanigans while the rest of the country was starved of physical contact with their loved ones. And yet, not one comparison from any of the mainstream journalists. The way the play announced the death of each character was startling and incredibly moving. It would go from a high energy chase and fight scene to a complete blackout. The loud sound of a, the death bell rang through the auditorium and on the screen at the top of the stage in white letters, the name of the character, what species they were, their age and how they died, either executed or in action. You visibly saw the audience draw a breath at moment, these moments during the play and this reaction was only possible because the puppetry was so superbly lifelike. The play is splattered with some much needed comedy from the sheep, the cow and the favourite, my favourite, the chickens. Their puppets and voiceovers are extremely funny and offer that well needed break from the darkness of the story. The animals, the death of the animals for me symbolises the censorship happening today. You go against the uh, mainstream or question the mainstream narrative and you are a domestic terrorist. And as we know, some people have actually lost their lives through trying to warn people of the lies and the agenda. The comparison of the animals not being able to read the commandments to the way they are dumbing down our children through the education system was clear as day to me. The pigs quickly use education and the lack of it to manipulate the other animals. Napoleon saw education as a way of indoctrinating right-thinking citizens from a very young age. And I believe they have rewritten history time and time again. And just like the animals, we have so quickly forgotten what life used to be like. The animals were lied to and told the farm was a lot better than it used to be, just like we are lied to now. You are safer with the constant CCTV surveillance. You are safer with social distancing and contact with family and friends through a screen. Lethal injections will save you from deadly diseases. The planet can be saved if we use electric cars and spend ridiculous amounts of money on face masks for cows. George Orwell's message that power, uh, powerful people are cruel and selfish whether they are conservative or labor, capitalists or communists, human or pigs, I would say spot on and brilliantly transferred to the stage in this production. They lie and manipulate and will never stop 
until we take our power back and simply say, no, we do not comply and we do not want your new normal. The play is on tour for the rest of May, so there is still a chance to catch it. It's in London at the Richmond Theatre in uh, this week. Then it moves to the Grand Theatre in Wolverhampton before finishing its run at the Churchill Theatre in Bromley. And I think we've got a trailer there of, um, of the show. Okay, thank you very much for that, Kitty. Joe Bryan, any thoughts? Uh, well, I, I just, I just thought how how wonderful for the theatre. But yes, I was one of the people at school many, many, many years ago uh, that covered the George Orwell story. And as Katie Joe says, we need to wake up because because uh, Animal Farm is happening around us now. There's no question of it. Okay. Do we have time to do? No, we don't. We don't. It's 25 past. Right, okay, okay. Right, we've got, to, we've got to end it there. I'm sorry about that. We are out of time. Uh, thank you very much, David, for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to thank Katie Joe for that was our first ever theatre review. And, uh, well, wow. Uh, hopefully it's not the last. Okay. And thanks to Katie Joe and to uh, Brian for joining us as well. Uh, we'll be back at the same time. As usual, 1 p.m. on Wednesday. If you're on the main UK column live stream, stick with us for a little bit of extra, but otherwise, uh, we'll see you then. Bye bye.